Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. In Irpin, a couple kiss each other goodbye through a fence as one prepares to board a train headed west. Outside Kiev, a group of soldiers play a late-night game of checkers with unlit Molotov cocktails. In Kharkiv, a painter-turned-medic surveys the church mural he left behind at the start of the war. These are just some of the images photojournalist Nicole Tung has captured in Ukraine. Tung began covering the conflict in Ukraine shortly after Russian tanks rolled across the border, and she has shot four photo essays, two in print and two online, for Harper's Magazine. I spoke with the veteran reporter about visual literacy in the age of social media, the balance between journalistic and artistic impulses, safety, and the amount of attention the war in Ukraine, unlike other ongoing conflicts, has garnered from the press. This is a huge question to begin with, but I feel the need to ask this of every photographer I meet because, you know, our culture is oversaturated with images, but visual literacy is very, very low. So what do you feel is the continued relevance of photojournalism? Yeah, it's a big question to start with, but I I think that you know, visual literacy it's very uneven in terms of the geographical, you know, locations of where people are able to access or see these images on a on a regular basis. So I think that, you know, obviously social media has helped kind of democratize that, but I also think that in terms of the relevance, it's still very much relevant. I mean, photojournalists who including myself, who cover world events and news. We're trained professionals. It's different to perhaps someone who is a passerby and takes a picture on their phone, right? We're looking at images in a very different way as far as what is in the the content of the picture, the composition, its relevance to the events. You know, it's not, it's not merely a, a snapshot, but it is actually a lot of I guess, calculating of information and how to embody all of that information in one single picture. And continuing on that thought, I think that we need photojournalism because, again, we're professionals. We, we do this. This is our, our job. But also it's a way to document not just history, but evidence of the events that are taking place around the world. And I, I find that that's obviously more weighted in... In certain places where there's a concentration of photojournalists, other places are less well covered, but we need photojournalists all around because we need these perspectives. We need people, or we hope that people will see these images that are made by people who are trained to do this and be informed about it. Hmm. And I guess, could we talk about those calculations you were discussing earlier? Like, what sort of factors go into deciding whether or not? someone or something should be a subject of a photograph? I think photography or uh, photography or photojournalism is so much about intuition. And I think when you, as personally, as a photographer, are drawn to somebody and want to photograph them, it's, it's more based on a feeling or maybe something that they're doing, an action that they're doing. For example, this morning I was covering the Orthodox Easter Mass in Bucha, which is the site of where hundreds, if not thousands, of people were were killed by Russians not too long ago. 
And people in in this during this church service were you know, they were residents of Bucha. They were extremely somber. It was the whole mood was was very heavy, you know, and it was really speaking to the gravity of what what had happened there. And there were a few people in particular within the crowd of of worshippers that that stood out to me. One woman was sobbing the whole entire sermon. Other people had expressions on their faces that were just so incredibly powerful, but but quiet. And so as a photographer, you're kind of looking for these messages and visual messages that also evoke feelings and empathy from people who might see the image. And when when you're in sort of, it's a public place, but it's also, as you were saying, it's kind of intimate, right? Where everyone is reflecting on, well, you don't know what they're reflecting on. I guess, how do you negotiate that, you know, sort of maintain sort of a respect for them being in this space, semi, semi-public space, versus the need to, you know, document to let people who aren't in Buka at that moment know what Easter Mass looks like for them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think that there has to be a certain physical distance between you and the person to give them space. You know, they're mourning still. They're also trying to be celebratory at the same time, but that's just, you know, the mood is so against the celebratory mood. And so like your physical distance does matter. The way a photographer moves matters. The way that a photographer might communicate with their eyes matters. All of these little minuscule calculations go into photographing somebody, a particular subject perhaps, but also respecting their dignity, their their boundaries, especially for people who are extremely traumatized. And if I have the opportunity, I will try and speak with them. Here in, in Ukraine, I've been using, I've been working with translators and fixers who obviously help me translate, without which I would, you know, not be able to do any of my work. So, you know, sometimes if the moment feels right, you can approach people and talk to them and 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 then that just lends so much more information, right? And and feeling towards the picture because you hear their story and it just gives that gives it so much more significance. So what is your reporting process like on a practical level? You just mentioned, you know, you have fixers, producers helping you actually communicate, but you know, how are you navigating what is a war zone or what is very close to being a war zone? A lot of patience is involved. And certainly, of course, the local journalists or fixers that we work with, that I work with, who, you know, I might have an idea, but they take that idea and help me run with it in terms of who to contact, the places that we might, you know, be able to access. It's sort of, you know, when you take a theme in a story, you are able to somehow create a a kind of spider chart in your own mind as to what what needs to be photographed to touch on, you know, the, the aspects within this theme. And so fixers, I mean, it's not always the most appropriate word for them because they do so much more than just arranging interviews or meetings. They, they're, you know, really the eyes and ears that, that journalists have here. And they're the ones who help us make safety decisions. So, you know, on a practical level, we really depend a lot on Ukrainian journalists and fixers here and, and anywhere in the world that I work, essentially, that's not in an English-speaking country. And so when I navigate a war zone, it's a lot of it has to do with, well, the experience that I have. Safety is always paramount to me. Deciding where to go, when to go, 
you know, these are all things that I kind of go through in my mind first before prioritizing story. And so the steps that I take to ensure the safety of my subjects and myself is really, you know, dependent on the situation. So for example, a few weeks ago when I was photographing kind of the, the remainder of the images for, for the May issue of Harper's, I was in a place called Kharkiv, which is in the northeast of, of uh, Ukraine. And it's a, it's a city that's being shelled quite consistently. And I knew that there was one particular neighborhood that was being hit quite hard. So when I went in there, it was not to linger for very long. I would just go there, find people, whether they were in basements or follow Red Cross volunteers who were delivering aid to difficult to reach places. Like there was always a kind of specific goal of going in there rather than just wandering around, you know, because shells can land anywhere randomly. And so, and also protecting, protecting subjects, like a lot of times people are very fearful that Russians might come after them or may return to where they had occupied villages or towns. And so they are very hesitant to give their full names and you have to respect that. Other people just downright don't want to be photographed and you also have to respect that. So, you know, I apply that rule to pretty much everywhere else I work. Here in Ukraine, it's not as, I guess, stringent with that. People are, are kind of more willing to give their, their names and be photographed. Um, in places like Syria or Iraq, where there is a real, real threat of kidnapping and other factors, people are much more hesitant to do that. So you just have to find a way around it. Mm-hmm. You know, you were talking about the photojournalist eye, this this professionalism, this the the level of decisions that you're kind of making kind of spur of the moment. And it's interesting because, you know, the classical idea of photojournalism, of war reporting, of these, you know, images from the front lines is that this is sort of this fly on the wall vision of what is happening. Like there's there's no filter that this is this is really what is happening. Whereas, you know, now when everyone has a cell phone camera, they can record anywhere, anytime. And you do get that immediacy. You do get you do get that sort of fly on the wall thing where, you know, the subjects may or may not be aware that someone is photographing them. That tension between showing the truth and something that's more composed the sort of decisions that, you know, the professional decision that you were talking about, I guess, do you feel like that is communicated to people who are looking at these photos abroad? How do you, I guess, sort of balance out this, maybe something more artistic versus something that is just the truth? Because there's that, there's a tension there, right? Between the stated purpose of photojournalism versus what you're, you're actually doing in practice, right? That's a loaded question. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think first and foremost, you know, in in photojournalism, our goal is to show the truth, but also truth is so subjective, right? Like, if you put something into a frame and exclude something on purpose, like for example, in this Easter Mass this morning, there were dozens of photographers in the in in the church, and my frames exclude them. Right. And as do all the other photographers, simply because we're part of the media, we're trying to like not show each other in our photographs. Sometimes it's unavoidable, but other times you can skillfully manage that. So, you know, it does look like the people who are there in the church are almost in isolation by themselves, it's, which was not the case. There were many other members of the media there. But I think to the to the larger point, when you're actually in an event photographing something, you do your best to show 
you know, the crux of what it's about, the, the truth, as it were, or your perceived truth of it. And I often think that the, the trouble with photojournalism is that we show the most kind of awful, dramatic things, right? Because that is what grasps people's attention. But I think that also when you're trying to be a fly on the wall, it's easier when there's a lot happening in front of you because people are distracted. They're not, you know, people who are you're photographing are not really paying as much attention to you. The more difficult situations is for photographers to make images where there's very little happening, but you're still trying to show the truth of something. And so I think first and foremost, so the, the content of the picture is the priority. And, you know, sometimes photojournalism is a blurred line between art and journalism because you're trying to artfully show something and images of suffering can be almost seen as beautiful, which is not the goal, but often turns out that way because of the composition, the toning that comes with it, whether, you know, it's in sort of muted light or perhaps the way photographers edit things afterwards, even, which is, you know, crossing another ethical boundary. And so there's so many different factors that really kind of go into a picture. But ultimately, you know, I think that for, you know, the integrity of photojournalists, our goal really is supposed to be about what the most important content in the in the picture should should be or should be shown. Right. Yeah. And I'm certainly not proposing that idea that like, oh, yes, you must, you know, this, this sort of purest idea of truth. There cannot be any, any editing whatsoever. I mean, I think the, the notion of the fly on the wall is kind of a, a false one. Yes. Even if it is somebody, you know, just with their cell phone camera. But again, I'm sort of I'm trying to get at this sort of larger I think there are a lot of misconceptions, not only about journalism, but specifically about photojournalism, that it's exactly what's happening. It's just pictures. You know, that 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 sort of lie that is perpetuated again, perhaps because of what kinds of images come back, but also sort of, you know, again, going back to this visual literacy question that as we become a more and more and more and more visual society, we don't really we don't have there's no there's no attempt to address like these very basic like straw men you know what I mean yeah I I do I I mean I think the whole fly on the wall concept is I think it's easier or it's more accepted now especially when you have a, a cell phone like right a phone camera because it's so ubiquitous but I think when you have a proper I suppose camera on you it's almost less accepted And so you can't really be a fly on the wall and you almost influence the situation more than you want to. And that's where I really believe like spending time in a situation, if you can, and just stand there for a long time and wait until things change in front of you, until people maybe notice you less, but are also as accepting of you. That is really the kind of key difference. So, you know, that's when you can almost become a fly on the wall. But in, in, in the initial kind of moments, you're, 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 you are influencing the situation. People are aware of you, but it's very different when you have a phone camera. Exactly. You know, you began your career at the start of the Arab Spring, which was a very, at first, a very celebratory, hopeful moment that became something really tragic. And I, I, you know, when while describing your experiences in Syria in an interview, you said that at first Syrians were really happy to see foreign journalists because the journalists were getting their story out. But then as time went on, Syrians grew resentful of them because of the international community's lack of action and assistance in the war. So what, 
what has the sentiment been like in Ukraine? And do you, and do you feel like that's shifting or kind of staying the same, or is it too early to tell? I mean, I think I, I want to elaborate a bit on the the resentment part. I think it's you know I definitely don't want to say that all people there are resentful. Absolutely not. It's actually a very 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 tiny minority. I think it and that in the context also it happened that I was you know someone threw a rock at me because it happened. I was there right after an airstrike happened and it had killed dozens of people. A lot of people were injured. They were still trying to take out, you know, people from the rubble. Like it was very heat of the moment and people were saying, what have you done for us? You know, why are you here? And so that was the context in which, you know, I said that people were resentful of, of journalists being there because it had been already a year since the war started in Syria and civilians were just being hammered by by the Syrian regime. So, you know, but for the most part, I mean, I've been working in Syria for nearly 12 years or 10, uh, 11 years now, and um, I have had nothing but the utmost hospitality from Syrian people. And so it's, you know, they still see the value of foreign journalists there, absolutely. And they want their stories told. When it comes to Ukraine, I think that it is a little too early to tell, but I think the dynamic, the geopolitical dynamic is so, so different. You know, I think that Ukrainians now have seen a purpose in which to unite. And, you know, they are very, for the most part, Western European leaning. The language speaking Ukrainian now has become a kind of hallmark of their identity, whereas before people kind of spoke a mix of Russian and Ukrainian. So, you know, all of these things are coming out and they're finding a very different reception than perhaps Syria was in the beginning. And so so Ukrainians are incredibly obviously grateful for the support that they're getting from the international community. Now 5 million people have become refugees and they've mostly received a quite warm welcome. And yeah, and that is definitely going to take a toll on neighboring countries who bear most of the burden. So it, I think that sentiment will shift a little bit in the coming months, but for now, it's still very much being supported, the war effort and, and, and refugees and displaced people. You know, I think that one of the things about this war that is striking is that you know, the amount of humanitarian aid that is coming into this country and being distributed across most places that are still under Ukrainian control is remarkable. For the most part, food has not been a, an issue for the areas still under Ukrainian control, obviously that's different for places that are under under siege or overtaken now by Russia. So, you know, the, the response has been enormous. You mentioned you were at this Easter Mass in Bucha. What shifted when journalists became aware of the atrocities there? I mean, you know, what was the situation like when you arrived? So I got to Bucha a couple of days after the really kind of big news about the bodies being found in, you know, various locations, mass graves. I, I got there maybe on day five, four. So I was a little bit, you know, after the, the main story had broken, but there was still a lot of stuff going on. I mean, there were volunteers who had nonstop been collecting bodies. And, you know, I saw these volunteers over a period of only two days because that's how much time I had to spend there. But you just could see their nerves were, were fraying and, and they were just, you know, constantly having to look at these atrocities. I mean, I just cannot imagine how they felt when they went home at night. But what shifted when the journalists became aware was that I think 
everybody had sort of been almost morbidly expecting somewhere to be a a story or microcosm of the atrocities that the Russians were capable of inflicting on civilians. And this became that story. And I think that this is but one place, right? We're thinking of Mariupol and all of the other places in the East that have not yet been uncovered or probably will never be uncovered if they remain under Russian control. And so this was a very dark, dark dynamic that was added to this conflict that everybody sort of had in the back of their minds expected, but just didn't imagine the scale and also the brutality of it. So yeah, I mean, I think that that really, not changed the course of the reporting, but I think it really was significant. I mean, it's such a significant event that it made, and also made the international community understand what was at stake here. This this sort of begs the question of representing the dead and sort of atrocities in general and conflict reporting. Um, do you feel like you approach those situations differently or how how do you negotiate being an outsider who has a responsibility to report something, but also, again, this question of respect, also not wanting to, I guess, show something that's knowing that certain images won't come back because they're perhaps a little too real for people, for, for certain editors and for newspapers? Yeah, it's a really good question because I think, well, for kind of larger publications, there's multiple layers and multiple meetings that happen, especially when it comes to quite graphic imagery. For me personally, and it was me and, and Katie, who's the photo editor, uh, art director at Harper's, you know, and I think that she is a really amazing editor. And I think that her filter is sort of the second filter after me, right? When I edit these photos, I have one sort of layer of like, okay, this is what I send. And then she then maybe has a conversation with someone else about it, or, you know, decides eventually on which images do get used. I think though that I, since I've started covering conflict and over the past 12 years, I've become better at knowing where to strike a balance because there are a lot of photographers who will only photograph bodies for days on end. And I just, for for me, I just don't see the need to do that. I, obviously, it's important to be there and to document it, but you have to balance that out by looking at the people who are still living, right? And the people who are living through these situations and and trying to make it a lot more well-rounded and more humanistic, right? Like I think it's so, it is, there is obviously a need and, and a value in documenting atrocities, but I think only doing that or only showing that almost cheapens the experiences of what people had gone through. Because if we're constantly seeing that and then we become desensitized, that's the opposite of what we should be doing. We should be evoking compassion and empathy and also showing another side of things so yeah, there there really has to be a very sensitive balance. And I think that, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, wow, one one awful photo and they suddenly turn away. Well, I don't want them to do that, but people will do that if you constantly show them that, right? So I think that we have a responsibility to be to be very careful about which pictures to put out because we do have to show these atrocities, but we also have to be aware, you know, we're where it may be too much so that people just look away the next time it happens again. And you've covered other conflicts extensively, you know, throughout the Middle East um, and other parts of the world. Um, and again, this is not, <laughs> this is not 
a question where it's like, you're not doing your job, but... <laughs> no, I understand. There has been criticism about how the situation Ukraine has been covered as opposed to ongoing conflicts such as the war in Yemen, which has not received anywhere near the amount of international attention. So how do you feel about that imbalance? And how do you navigate that as a photojournalist? Again, there are so many different layers as to why this is happening. But yeah, how do you how do you deal with that on a on a personal level? Yeah, it's really it's really tricky. I think that Absolutely. The the kind of waves of journalists that continue coming to Ukraine to cover it is partly because of the access. Like it's easy to kind of fly to Poland or Moldova or Romania and then cross the border. And there's really not been too much trouble in doing that for, for most journalists or even freelancers who may come without an assignment. So that's kind of one thing in versus Yemen or Syria is much more difficult to actually physically access and I think the imbalance is also, you know, I, I do see it. I kind of think about it every single day because I'm, I'm here covering it. But yet there are so many other issues and stories going on around the world that do deserve as much attention. And also, I think that there is, especially from the Western world, a bias towards Ukrainian. And I think seeing 5 million Ukrainian refugees is not nearly as shocking as seeing perhaps one million Afghans or Syrians going into Western Europe in 2015. I mean, that changed the political course of Europe, right? And this, for example, I think, I mean, it's still too early to tell, but 5 million Ukrainians going into Europe is is almost more acceptable. And so there is a bias, there is a kind of racist uh, undertone, absolutely. And I, it, I'd struggle with it every day because I've been here for eight weeks and I kind of, I'm like, when am I going to go back to the stories that I think really, you know, also deserve attention. And so, you know, it's not to say that what's happening here is is fine. It's absolutely not. And I think it's still important to to document it. I just, I do, you know, struggle with this whole imbalance, though. It is kind of very obvious in the way that the international community has been so supportive of people in Ukraine, which is amazing and wonderful, but have not been the same way with other conflicts. And I think it's also, I think the simplicity perhaps, or, or the, I don't like to use this word, but I think it's the conflict here is, is kind of like good versus evil. Right. And I think that people identify with that much easier than a place like Syria or Yemen, where the conflicts are proxy conflicts. They're very complicated. There's, uh, you know, various religions involved, sects, all of these things that are very hard for people to digest, especially if they've never been to these countries. And so the, those stories end up a lot on the back burner uh, or, or are not really on the forefront of people's minds. Whereas this conflict, I think, is like, oh, it's good versus evil. Russia is bad and Ukraine is good. And it's much more complicated than that, of course. But I think that is sort of the general <laughs> narrative, right? So, yeah, I think that's why it does get a lot of support, whereas other conflicts don't. And do you, do you feel like that this imbalance could be resolved at some point? Obviously, you know, can't, can't solve racism in a, in a heartbeat, but it's obviously there's going to be, will there be some sort of reckoning or, or steps that could be taken to help the public at large kind of understand things where it's a little bit, you know, a little bit grayer? Oof. Uh... 
I mean, I don't really have a very good answer to that just because I think like, you know, we, we try as, as journalists to document these things and stories and we try to put it on front pages and on social media. And I think there's also a certain level of fatigue that hasn't happened yet with Ukraine where, you know, wars in Yemen and Syria have been going on nearly a decade. I mean, the war here in Ukraine had started back in 2014. Um, but I think this kind of new new war has triggered a lot more response because it, you know, of, of the nature of what's happened. But how, how can we get people to, to care more is um, <laughs> it's a million dollar question. Mm. <laughs> Yes. No, I, I, I didn't I didn't expect you to be like, well, actually, I've got the magic, I've got the exact <laughs> idea right here. But it is valuable to hear, you know, someone who's in this, who's been doing this for so long to be like, yeah, this is not this is not easily solved and we're doing our best. And sort of do, dealing with that question of fatigue or, you know, just sort of generally maybe not giving images from conflict zones the amount of attention scrutiny that you know you might give a written piece how can listeners slow down a bit and start to parse photographs in a meaningful way is there a preferred way you you like to have your photographs seen yeah i think i, I definitely think social media has made us a lot more a lot better at just scrolling right we're we're like it's it's a very passive experience and you're not always engaging necessarily in in the images because just, just because there's so many images. And so, you know, I really do believe still that the printed medium, as old school as it sounds, has inherent value. I love, you know, seeing pictures in, in the magazine. I'm extremely, extremely proud of it when it gets printed in the magazine because it's something you can physically hold and, and scrutinize and look at the pictures and see, look at it for a long time and see the expressions of people or the scenery what speaks to people, you know, is, is very different. So each person will look at a picture in a magazine, for example, and feel differently about it or read something differently about it. And then of course, having photos in, in a gallery, uh, physical photos in a gallery is also valuable because you can print huge images and, and you are put into that situation almost, and you become absorbed. At least I do when I, when I look at pictures in a gallery, you become absorbed in a different way that you might not from social media or a magazine. Mm. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. It was really great speaking with you. Of course. Thank you. You've been listening to the Harper's Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. The New York Times has called us America's most interesting magazine. Receive elegant, insightful, and wry writing from the best journalists, essayists, critics, novelists, and poets every month in our print magazine, and gain access to our digital archive, which stretches back to 1850. Visit harpers.org save to subscribe for only $16.97.